Well, this morning we continue this series that we've been in, uh, Spiritual Formation Over a Lifetime, and looking at the life of David as a way for us to think about our own formation that happens over a lifetime, and we've been, at least in our adult discipleship group, uh, reading Eugene Peterson's Leap Over a Wall as a way to help us think about David's life. So this morning we come to this famous story of David and Bathsheba, who are forever linked together. Bathsheba is the innocent victim. David, the perpetrator, abuses his God-given royal power in several ways in this story. He claims her, sleeps with her, sends her away, and then unable to cover up his sin, he finally arranges for the death of her husband. I mean, I don't know if TMZ does series, but if they did, this just sounds like a TMZ series, right? I mean, this is like shocking. It's like sort of beyond words, shocking. Imagine if one of our senior politicians today did something like this and it was found out. It would be, you know, it'd be news for years. It'd just go on and on and on. But the story, I think, if we're thoughtful about it, is uncomfortable. We don't like to think of God's leaders in this way. And it can be shocking that the Bible's so honest about its leaders. It just tells the story plain. But I think for us, as we come to it this morning, we come to it under this larger idea of our lifetime formation in Christ. And as we come to it, I think part of what we're meant to see is our bond with David. That though, while the details might be different, we too are sinners. And this is just right at the heart of our formation in Christ. I mean, our formation in Christ presupposes malformation. It doesn't presuppose no formation. It presupposes that when we come to Christ, we come malformed and thus are seeking transformation. And so this, I think, is just really hard. It's hard to connect to that without guilt and shame and wondering if God really loves us, beating ourselves up. There's just all kinds of stuff attached to that, right? But I think what we're meant to see here is that once we confess that truth, that we also have the bond of David's profound repentance and the receptance of this indescribable grace and forgiveness from God. And we come to the knowledge that David's sin, as huge as it was, and it was huge, is just wildly outdone by the grace of God. I mean, what if David's sin is just as tall as we could stack it up, is something like a grain of sand in the ocean of God's forgiveness? that somehow God is able to take all the ups and downs of David's life and net it out at the scripture inside of your bulletin that David is a man after God's own heart. I remember seeing that phrase as a 19, 20-year-old kid when I was first a convert, just you know, knowing enough about David to just tilt my head and go, what? And kind of even more shockingly, the Bible says that Jesus is the son of David. Right? Like, do you have any weird uncles in your family or weird aunts, right? And you try to just sort of forget them, right? And the Bible's just like, no, just right out there. Jesus is the son of David. He arises, he is the promised son of David. He arises precisely out of this very mixed up, confusing story. And so the episode begins, the, the part that we read this morning of Nathan coming to David, Begins with David staying home from battle, and we don't have time to get into this, but that would have been a hugely disgraceful thing in his context. 
Again, we don't know, we have to sort of read between the lines, but it could be that this was brought on by some sort of bout with depression or spiritual lethargy or, you know, we, we can't really know David's motivations, but it was, a, it was a seriously wrong thing for him to do. And I just wonder, and I'm, I tend to think of this from the point of view of the work I do with Christian leaders, so I'm aware that this room is full of Christian leaders, that like 80% of you probably have roles that you play out there somewhere in the world, and so and you can relate to this on that level. But I think all of us can relate to this. But for me, if I just think back of the 30 or 35 years that I've been overseeing pastors and Christian workers of various kinds, that it feels to me like something like this is often what happens. That being made in the image of God, we have a really strong desire, somewhere deep in us is a very strong desire to use that God-given energy and creativity to be a force for good in the world and to actually have the power to do it, right? So can you feel that, that, that thing you have in you that wants to do good? But pursuing this goal, we often end up with too much work, too much responsibility, and I think especially for pastoral types, directors, counselors, those sorts of people, too much empathy. And this leads then to feelings of hopelessness and defeat, and burnout. And this is what I've noticed. This is the point in which many leaders or people in general start looking for a diversion from the pain, looking for something to grab our attention away from reality as we're now experiencing it. So we can't really know why David didn't go out to battle, but he goes out on the roof that day pacing with some sort of deep pain, something's broken in him, and he sees medication. He sees diversion, and this is one of the great abuses of his power, the reducing of a woman to a diversion, to a pill, right? To an injection of some sort. And this is why I think Nathan in the story speaks of this little ewe lamb. Now again, we can't know anything about Bathsheba really. So we just, we just total guessing to read into whatever was going through her head and all this. But if we just take the little window that Nathan's giving us in on it, you see a kind of tenderness, a kind of innocence, a, a, a cherishness of Bathsheba and who she was. And David, rather than cherishing that and protecting it as a king should, he uses his power to use her. And so it's this desire often to medicate some sort of pain, some sort of disappointment, some sort of burnout that leads to the temptation to do these sorts of things. And I just wanna say, if I'm honest about it, I don't like saying it because I don't like sounding negative about the church. But I've seen this in lesser ways played out hundreds and hundreds of times in my 30 or 35 years of overseeing Christian leaders. Plays out all the time. And I'm just saying what I've noticed over that long period of time is that it's almost never about the sex. It's almost always about something else, pain, disappointment, emptiness, hopelessness, needing to feel alive. There's just so many explanations for it. Almost never is it about the physicality. And of course, this is what James is getting at, you know, the famous passage in James 1 where he says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it's full-blown, gives birth to death. And this is exactly what we see in this story today that while David is wildly forgiven, he has put things into place. He's 
he started a domino or something, and that domino is gonna have an effect all the way down the line, even giving birth to death. And so then once a Christian or a leader starts acting out in order to fulfill these longings, it's sin and entrapment and addiction, it's distancing ourselves from loved ones that are soon to follow. I just gotta think something like that was happening to David. And I just wanna say to you who are people who care deeply and who are highly empathetic and who see brokenness and want to make a difference in the world, that you want to put a stop to this before it gets too far down the line. That the moment you start feeling the kind of emptiness, defeat, burnout, is to just notice, become aware of it before this pattern ends up grabbing us. So Nathan, when he comes to David, begins his confrontation with an analogy. And I think that's important to say because women are not lambs, women are not things. So this is an analogy. And the analogy is meant to say, you took something of inestimable value. That's the whole point of this. All the adjectives around that you lamb is meant to say, all the descriptions are meant to say, this is something of indescribable value. And rather than cherishing it, you, you took it from a poor man and used it for yourself. And David, to his credit, and this is the mystery of David, these huge swings of his ups and downs of his life, he gets it and says, yes, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, I wonder what it was he was conscious of in that moment, and what are we to be, con what are we to be conscious of? You know, and I thought about it this week, and I you know, brought to mind all the Hebrew words like transgression and you know, those sorts of things about Hebrew words for sin, and I thought of the Greek words for sin, and you know, get out some dictionaries, and you know, so you can come to sort of dictionary definitions of sin, but I, I, I think there's a wholeness here in this little paragraph from Tom Wright that I wanna to read to you that I think it includes all those definitions, but I think lands them in a really good place where Wright says, the diagnosis of the human plight is not simply that humans have broken God's moral law or have offended or insulted the creator, while that's true. But this law-breaking, Wright says, is a symptom of a much more serious disease. Morality is important, but it isn't the whole story. Called to responsibility and authority within and over creations, humans have turned their vocation upside down. So do you see what I mean? Like a woman bathing, and again, we don't know what that was like. I mean, you would assume it was somehow sheltered, so did David just get a quick glimpse of a naked woman? I mean, we don't know. But, but that part of it, that's the TMZ part of this. You know, nakedness, right? That's TMZ to a T, right? And somebody with a distance lens, you know how they sometimes catch starlets on a beach, you know, with this lens that they're using from half a mile away? Just, you know, think of our paparazzi today. See, that, I mean, that's sort of salacious, it's scandalous, and, and that's what so easily sits in our imagination. But what if what's going on here is much deeper, and that it's something like this, that David turned upside down his vocation to care for God's people and used his power for himself. See, that is just way more fundamental than what part of your body is touching somebody else's body part. I don't mean to say that doesn't matter, but I just mean our fixation on those more salacious details, I think right is right, that often it misses the point. Yes, morality is important, but it isn't the whole story. 
The whole story is that we are called by God, created by God, to have responsibility and authority to help little use, to cherish and protect them. But when we turn that upside down and we begin to give worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself, such as sexual intercourse, when we give ourselves to those sorts of powers that are within creation, we begin to engage in what the Bible calls idolatry. And the result is slavery and finally death. And so again, instead of being responsible for Bathsheba, David uses her for whatever reason, pain, boredom, whatever. And it ends up enslaving the rest of his life. Not because he had sex, but he gave himself over to an actual flipping of who's he meant to be in God and in Christ. So in our Psalm reading this morning, you know, this famous Psalm 51, we get to see though that David feels the truth of Nathan's observation. David gets it. David knows that this is a whole lot more than a TMZ fling. This is a whole lot more than some photographer catching two stars kissing who we didn't know were together. David knows this is way more than that and this is why you feel this deep cry of, have mercy on me, Lord, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now that's one of those Hebrew words that, that goes much deeper than merely the breaking of, let's say, the Ten Commandments. Transgression means to choose your own way. It means to go a different way than what you know to be right. It's the beginning of that inverting, of God made me king to affect good, God made me king for the sake of others, and then the using of the other for yourself, that's the big transgression. It's very hard for us, we just almost impossible for us to read the oomph into these old Hebrew words. So they, they include the physicality. They don't, you know, they're not prudish. They don't, it's not that they can't include the physicality, but they're seeing something much deeper than that. So David says, so I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. And this is one of the big highs in David's life because in this moment, there's no excuses. There's no rationales. There's the knowledge. You're right, Nathan, I've done it. And in the Psalm, he says to God, it's against you, God, and you only that I've sinned and done what's evil in your sight. And this is where, again, David is a very rich example of formation because he keeps it personal. He doesn't say, well, life's really hard. You don't know how hard it is to be king. And again, if you know me, you know I don't, I'm not a political person, this is not a political comment. But this is the way I, through the whole Monica Lewinsky thing with Clinton, this is the way I always conceived of it. You have no idea how hard it is to be married to Hillary. Again, I'm not kidding. And you have, no, you have no idea how hard it is to be president. And so rationales creep in and it becomes impersonal and, and it's not real, but David's keeping it real here. This is personal, I sinned against you. And so you can see here in David's mind that there's not something religious happening here, but for David, God is front and center of the story of his life. And God is front and center of the story of this sin. And this is why, again, we can learn from this this morning because in this psalm, we see what it is that makes David a spiritual person. And again, I, I don't blame you if you say, in what way is he spiritual? He just slept with a woman who wasn't his wife and took her to be his own and arranged for her husband to get killed. And in what way could he ever, in what universe could he ever be described as spiritual? I mean, I can tell you as, as a bishop, 
somebody does something like that who's one of my priests, you're out. Seriously, you're out. It's not not question like, you know, like a baseball umpire, out, foul ball, you're out. So like in what way, like in what universe is David spiritual? Well, what if this is the answer? That the spiritual person is a person who's leading a life that's largely intermingled and dependent upon the action of God in his kingdom. Let me say that again. What if the spiritual person is the kind of person who's living a life that's largely intermingled? We'd want to say totally, but we're fallen, so we can't. So largely intermingled and dependent upon the action of God in his kingdom. And that the non-spiritual person is the one who's leading a life independent of God's action with them. See, David doesn't do that. David doesn't make it about how hard it is to be at war and, and doesn't talk about how exhausted he is. That might have all been true. Again, we don't know fundamentally what motivated him, but something bad, and he doesn't use it as a rationale. This is what makes him a spiritual person. He's doing business with God. And in that sense, he's the opposite of the religious leaders in John 8, in our gospel reading this morning. I know this story is always called, you know, a woman caught in adultery. And I I don't even mean this sort of humorously. I don't know why it's not called men caught in hypocrisy. (laughs) Because again, I mean, fundamentally, that's what this story is told about. The woman being caught in adultery is really just sort of a data point to expose the wickedness of these Jewish leaders who refuse to have anything to do with God, really. I mean, the whole, we can't look at it, but the whole context of John 8 That whole chapter, there's like three big stories in it. And the whole context is these are people who are trying to get rid of, if not kill Jesus. So in that sense, they're like the opposite of David. They're not wanting to really interact with what God's doing in Christ. But this poor woman who's been caught in adultery and is being used as a tool, she's just simply to them a tool to trap Jesus, to discredit him, and to set him aside. So they were acting this way from a sense of moral superiority over the woman, not realizing that their sin of trying to get rid of Jesus was far worse. But the woman who is interacting with Jesus, who does interact with him, who does lock eyes with him, is freed from condemnation and also freed from sin. Kind of a double cure there. She's not just freed from guilt and shame and condemnation, but when Jesus says, go and sin no more, that's not a wagging his finger sort of moralism. It's freedom. It's like the woman at the well. From now on, you don't have to give yourself to men in this way. You don't have to secure yourself through men. You don't have to make yourself secure in this ancient society in which women were things. Like, that doesn't have to be true of you anymore. You can go and sin no more. Listen to me. You no longer have to sin to make yourself secure. Go and sin no more. It's not at all a moralism. It's a freedom. And so you're free now. In me, relating to me, being a spiritual person, receiving from me, not rationalizing, you then experience, you know, in that old Wesleyan hymn, the double cure. Freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. So when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he's saying, you are not just freed from the penalty, the condemnation, but you're freed from the power of it. It no longer has to have authority over you. You can have this rich, interactive life with God through me, and you can live a different kind of life. So I think just a a couple of formational thoughts that maybe we can take away from this episode in David's life. The first one for me as I think of our formation in Christ is that fundamental to our formation in Christ is not merely trying to avoid sin, That's actually a really bad practice. 
It doesn't actually work long-term. What we're trying to do is something that feels, for lack of a better word to me, more Ignatian. We're trying to learn to recognize sin. And then as we recognize it, to then reorder our disordered desires, right? That's what was fundamentally wrong with David. It wasn't about body parts in the end. It was around disordered desires. It was the desire to medicate his pain or boredom or whatever it was rather than serve those God had called him to serve. You see, that's a disordered desire. And so while turning away would have been a good strategy in the moment, and you should, I recommend it, should. It's just, not, it's just that it's not fundamental. What we want to do is recognize that. Oh, there was a little spark of lust in me. And that could be for a piece of furniture or a car or a man or a woman. It could be whatever. It doesn't matter. But see, what we're fundamentally learning to do is recognize that. And then again, with the Holy Spirit, just gently wonder, what's that all about? Why is that such a spark? What is there a pain, a boredom? A, what's going on in me? that that attaches to a broken desire in me. And then we begin to wonder with Jesus, how do I, Lord, how do you and I work on these disordered desires? That's what's fundamental. So this means then, secondly, that our approach to dealing with sin can move from threats and dire warnings and fear-based moralisms and help us to be way more honest with God, open-hearted to God, who desires to heal and restore and to give a second chance. And then thirdly, Peterson in this chapter says, sin isn't essentially a moral term designating items of wrongdoing. Sin is a spiritual term designating our God avoidance and our God pretensions. Now you can see how that is way more fundamental than what you look, see, or touch. Looking, seeing, touching, those sorts of the outworkings of our disordered desires, those, those things, right? So we have these broken inward, unseen, hidden, disordered desires. Yes, they express themselves in what we see and touch or that sort of thing, but those are rooted in these deep God avoidances or God pretensions. And again, if I, I, guess I don't say this very often, but if I know sometimes people wonder, you know, why, why the big emphasis in Holy Trinity on spiritual formation? And that's why. I mean, your, your typical religious moralisms are never gonna get at what are your God pretensions? What are your God avoidances? Those are very different things. And if we don't learn to pay attention to them without judgment of ourselves or each other, we're just never gonna get to the kind of freedom that Jesus implied with, go and sin no more, that double cure, right? Can we just be honest for a second that for most of us, the evangelical world we came out of highlighted one of those cures, forgiveness, and then you can go to heaven when you die. And that's true, it's good. But you heard very little to nothing about the being released from the power of, this double cure of now you can go and sin no more because your God pretensions, the sense that you could be God by securing yourself through, in this case, giving yourself to men, you can be freed from that. Now think of this woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. This was a very common thing. And men would have had their own versions of it. But it was so much more in your face with women that it's, it's the way the New Testament gives us this. But Jesus is, I mean, again, we're reading between the lines, but I gotta think that more fundamental to Jesus than merely the forgiving of her sins was the freeing of her as a person who God created and cherished, imagined 
her having a life that's free enough to do the good of others, not so bound by having to create her own good that she could be free to be an agent of good and an ambassador of the kingdom. So lastly, you know, when we've sinned, Psalm 51 is obviously um, so magnificent and there's a couple places in it where I think Eugene is brilliant in the message and this is one of them. So when you've sinned, just think like this. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Just feel David saying, I am that man. I did that. It's not about my body part. This is about me. This is about who I am. And he's saying, I learned to really adore and place my confidence in God. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. For it's heart-shattered lives that are ready for love, and it's heart-shattered lives that don't for a moment escape God's notice. But again, our God pretensions, our God avoidances, they keep us from there. And so I feel like what we learned from this story this morning is learning to pay attention both to what's real about us and what's real about God, and somehow finding the courage to bring those things together, somehow finding the wisdom, the discernment to bring those two things together so that our sin doesn't drive us from God, but like David, drives us to God worship and our heart-shattered lives. This is precisely that which God gives his attention. This is what God notices, and that he notices it for our good, to be the double cure, to forgive and to release. So as we come now to a moment of quiet, maybe you want to become aware, is there a way in which you feel the need or the desire for a second chance? Maybe you find yourself working on a kind of brokenness in which maybe this morning you can find the courage to say, yeah, that, that is me. It's not just my tongue saying things or my hand touching things or my feet walking in a certain direction, but this is me. So maybe this morning you can hear through the Spirit God's double cure for you and to quench your desire for a second chance, a fresh start, a new beginning.